I want to take a break from the podcast right now and I want to give you a gift. I don't want to do that to thank you for being a listener. I put my heart and soul into this podcast. I love interviewing today's experts, researchers, MDs, psychologists, sleep trainers, you name it. I just, I hope you feel inspired to take care of yourselves and your families. And I just want to thank you for, for being a listener and hanging out with me. So the code podcast10 is going to give you a one-time $10 off code at kellylevesque.com, your next order of protein powder. You can either use that on my grass-fed beef isolate protein or on my new vegan chocho bean protein. Now, here's what I love about my protein powders. It's three ingredients or less. So we don't use fillers, emulsifiers, no fortified vitamins or minerals. It's easy to digest and naturally made without any enzymes or chemicals like hexane. So it's three ingredients. With my grass-fed beef isolate, that's 100% grass-fed beef, and it's made in the way that you would make bone broth. So just heat and water. And we dehydrate that end product to get that collagen-rich protein powder that your whole family can drink. It can be added to coffees, to smoothies, and you can get it in vanilla, chocolate, and unflavored. I wanna point out that my vanilla and chocolate is made with organic vanilla bean, organic cacao, and the only sweetener used is organic monk fruit. We don't use any maltodextrin. Our monk fruit is 100% ground monk fruit, and it's organic. And with my vegan line, I'm so excited to have launched this and to have it out into the world. It's a regenerative bean from South America called the chocho bean. And the chocho bean is the most superior plant-based protein powder you can get your hands on because not only is it a complete protein, but the process is made with heat and water only. They're crushed and soaked, and what that end product results in is an anti-nutrient-free protein powder. So you're not gonna have any lectins, phytates, or oxalates in your protein powder. Makes it super easy to digest, and it's really, really delicious and robust in cooking as well. So I love it if I want a thicker smoothie or a smoothie bowl, and I also love it in my baked goods, from my cookies to my muffins, pancakes and breads. It's the perfect protein addition. So if you wanna give either of these proteins a try or you've already been purchasing these proteins and wanna take advantage of this special deal, the code PODCAST10 is gonna get you $10 off for being a listener here at the Be Well by Kelly podcast. So head to kellylevesque.com or bewellbykelly.com Put the protein you'd like to purchase in your cart and use the code PODCAST10 for $10 off. Thank you, thank you, thank you for tuning in. It's kind of like your muscles are a bit sore, but actually it's teaching them to be stronger. So when I recommend that reintroduction process and people get a little bit of symptoms, I'm like, celebrate that, guys. That's showing that your, your gut is learning to tolerate it. Dr. Megan Rossi founded The Gut Health Doctor and is considered one of the most influential gut health specialists internationally. She's been a registered dietitian and nutritionist for the last decade with an award-winning PhD in gut health. Frustrated that her research findings weren't reaching the public and seeing fads and potentially dangerous misinformation on gut health being spread, Megan took to social media to share credible evidence-based advice and has built an engaged community of over 390,000. Her debut book, Eat Yourself Healthy and Love Your Gut, was first published in September of 2019 as an easy-to-digest guide to gut health. Her new book, Eat More, Live Well, and How to Eat More Plants, was also an instant Sunday Times bestseller. Megan founded the Gut Health Clinic in London, where she leads a team of gut specialist dietitians, as well as creating her own multi-award winning gut health food brand, Bio and Me, to bridge the gap between science and the food industry. This is a fun listen, so tune in on how you can improve your microbiome. 
Megan, fellow boy mom, gut-obsessed nutritionist. It is such a pleasure to have you on the show. I'm so excited we could find a time that worked for both of our calendars and time zones. So thanks for being here. There's a lot of commonality here, so I'm really keen to get stuck into the the details to really help people, I guess, maximize their health, which I'm sure is what everyone's joining your podcast for. Definitely. Well, gut health can be very confusing. And so we're going to dive into the nitty gritty with you today and how you support your clients through your clinic. But I'm curious, you went back for a PhD in gut health in your early 20s. Not very many people do that. Can you talk a little bit about what drew you to this field and to go back for such a professional degree at such a young age? Yeah, look, signing away my early 20s uh, to doing a PhD and literally playing with people's stool samples certainly wasn't the most glamorous thing. But um, my interest in gut health began when I was in my final year studying nutrition and dietetics. And sadly, I lost my grandma to bowel cancer. And my grandma had a really big part in my upbringing. So it really, you know, it hit me hard. And I actually hated the gut, if I'm going to be completely honest, for, you know, putting her through the chemo, the cancer, and then obviously taking her life. But it wasn't until I was a dietitian working in the hospital setting, seeing all different types of conditions, whether it was mental health, heart disease, kidney disease, different cancers, but also is very fortunate to be the nutritionist for the Australian Olympic synchronized swimming team. And what I found so striking is that people of very different backgrounds coming to me all with gut issues. I thought, gosh, what is about this organism literally stalking me? And that was about 2010. So there hadn't been a whole lot of gut health research really at the forefront. So I thought, you know what? I owe it to not just my grandma, but to my patients and clients to find out more about this. So that's when I decided, you know what? To do that, I have to do this PhD, looking at pre and probiotics, the different types of supplementation, essentially targeting the gut, but whether that could have widespread benefits on things like our mental health and our heart health. And it was really that PhD that completely transformed my relationship with the gut. It became so clear that actually... The gut was just misunderstood. I misunderstood the gut. It had so much power and potential. We just needed to know how to work with it. Definitely. So you went back to King's College in London. You worked at a re- as a research fellow there and you looked into IBS. Can you talk a little bit about the research that you were able to like uncover and some findings? Yeah, absolutely. So I still work as a research fellow at King. So that actually drew me from Australia. So people may have picked up, I am Australian, although I live in yeah. London. So I moved over after my PhD to continue my research. Um, and I, I joined forces with King's College because they're doing really great, innovative research in terms of things like IBS, as you mentioned, and gut health. And we know that IBS affects around 10% of people. And the research that we're doing is quite wide in terms of some of our clinical trials in IBS are looking at low FODMAP diet. And I think anyone with with IBS may have heard that word before. Essentially, it's quite a, a restrictive medical diet and it's not actually a healthy diet at all because what FODMAPs are, most of them are these things called prebiotics. So prebiotics is like fertilizer for the gut. So actually a diet which cuts them out certainly isn't a healthy one, generally speaking. But we know that if you've got IBS, which is this dysfunction between the gut and the brain, that having a bit of gut rest from these prebiotics, from these FODMAPs for a short period of time, four to six weeks actually can have 
really remarkable improvements on your symptoms. But then we go through the next stage of that diet where we systematically start to reintroduce. So the research that we do at King's is looking at that diet in particular, looking at the reintroduction process, but also the potential damage that it can do if people stick on the low FODMAP diet too long. And we certainly see that, that it reduces some of our beneficial anti-inflammatory gut bacteria like bifidobacteria. And then other studies we've got in IBS is looking at predicting response to different dietary interventions, whether that is low FODMAP diet or probiotics. So they're the live microorganisms. And the way we're looking at predicting is not just looking at the bacteria people have in their gut, but actually looking at the chemicals the bacteria are producing in their gut. Now, I know I'm probably starting the podcast off with quite a lot of complex information, um, but essentially the goal will be you come into my clinic and I do a test on you, a stool test. And from that, I can say, okay, the best way we can manage your treatment is via a probiotic supplement. Or actually for you, it's a low FODMAP diet. Or for you, it's more about the fiber components in your diet. Now, certainly that is not ready for commercialization. So you will see companies out there offering that sort of service. But I say, definitely stick away. Save your money, guys, because that's just not validated yet. It's very much in the research world, us trying to look at the ins and outs because it's very complex. And then another study we've got in IBS, which we just wrapped up, is looking at different types of dietary fibers. Uh, we know that different types of fibers can have different effects on people's gut. Some of it can be really therapeutic, like a psyllium husk, which is really helpful, particularly if you've got constipation predominant IBS, whereas other types of fibers like inulin, which is actually a type of prebiotic, a type of FODMAP, obviously can create quite a lot of distress if it's taken at too much of a high dose. So we're looking at scanning people's guts and, and looking at actually the metabolism of those different fibers. But I'm going to stop there because let's get into I want to make sure we, I certainly leave with a lot of practical tips because I'm very passionate about people being inspired by gut health, but also have tangible take-homes because, you know, there's one thing to be interested, but if you don't know what to do on a daily basis and, you know, it kind of defeats the purpose of it. Well, I think you've already given us one major tangible takeaway, which is the low FODMAP diet that can be taken too far or too long. And I've seen many clients who've been diagnosed with you know, recurrent SIBO or certain types of IBS. They found FODMAPs online or started reading a FODMAP book, felt better within those first four or five days of being on FODMAPs, thought it was a cure to everything. And then two years later, they're still living a low FODMAP life. So can you talk just a little bit more about what it means to lower that beneficial bacteria and what people should be doing when it comes to reintroduction? Like how often are they reintroducing one of those FODMAP foods? Because like you said, FODMAPs are the fermentable fibers. Those are the prebiotics. That is the fertilizer for your microbiome. And yes, you don't want to overfeed the bad guys that are giving you all these symptoms. But at the same time, no food means the good guys are going down. Exactly. And, and Kelly, it's something I'm really passionate about people realizing that just because they feel better in the short term, that can actually do more damage in the long term because we know that our gut microbiome, we need that plant diversity to nourish it in a way that then improves things like our mental health, our heart health, things like our hormonal regulation. So if we're restricting these fibers long-term, maybe yes, your gut symptoms will be at bay, but actually you'll start to notice as you get older, a lot of other things start to pop up, which could be kind of that knock-on negative impact. So I think it's important that when we think about the low FODMAP diet, we, we see that it's three stages. We 
we've got that more restrictive stage. Then the second stage is called the reintroduction stage. And this is where we slowly start to reintroduce the different categories in a very systematic way to test which ones you're more easily tolerating and which ones you can still tolerate, but you need to go slower. And what happens is actually you teach your gut bacteria and your body to metabolize them more effectively by slowly reintroducing. And I think there's a myth out there that you have like an allergy to FODMAPs or you can never have FODMAPs. That's not the case. I've been a practicing clinician for, you know, over a decade and there's not been a gut. I haven't been able to teach to reintroduce and cope with FODMAPs in the long term. So that absolutely should be everyone's goal. But some people you need to go slower. So for example, it might be chickpeas, for example. You might find that you're a little bit more sensitive to chickpeas, but that's not a case of, okay, well, I'm not having chickpeas because we know they're pre-bite, they're really important. It's a case of every day having like a table. So get a can, pop it open, rinse it out, put it in the fridge, take a tablespoon every day for the first week. Second week, have two tablespoons because what that does is builds your gut bacteria's ability to digest them more effectively. And I kind of liken it to, um, like you know, going to the gym, for example. If you haven't been to the gym for ages, i.e. cut back formats for ages, haven't had formats for ages, you go to the gym, you go hard, you have, you know, do really heavy weights or in the format scenario, you eat a whole can of chickpeas with the gym, you, your muscles are going to feel really sore. You're like, whoa. And you know what's funny? We actually tend to celebrate that at the in the next at the gym if we're <laughs> feeling so like, oh, yeah, I work really hard. Well, actually, the same nearly in a way is with the FODMAPs. Although, obviously, we don't want to be in pain, but I think there's also this level of fear that we've done damage, and that's not the case. It's kind of like your muscles are a bit sore, but actually it's teaching them to be stronger. So when I recommend that reintroduction process and people get a little bit of symptoms, I'm like, celebrate that, guys. That's showing your your gut is learning to tolerate it. Obviously, I don't want to push you to to a level of where it really is uncomfortable, but having a bit of gut activity is actually a good thing. It's teaching your your gut microbiome and your gut lining to tolerate it. And then there's the third step uh, where it's what we call the personalization, where you kind of level out your FODMAP intake, where it certainly is no longer considered anywhere near low, but you're kind of working to make sure you can, by about 12 months, be able to include whatever you want. Now, what we see certainly in the, the scientific evidence is that if you are wanting to go down the FODMAP route, it probably should be done by a format trained clinician. But I know obviously that's not accessible for everyone. So in my first book, Love Your Gut, I came up with this FODMAP light approach. So essentially it was looking at all of the really high FODMAP foods because it's all different levels of the amount of FODMAPs and the strict version cuts all of them out. So what I've done is just picked the top probably 10 from each category and allowing people to still have a really nice diverse diet and then go through how you systematically reintroduce that. So if you don't have access to you know, a FODMAP trained healthcare professional, then that might be a good place to start because it works in about 70% of people, just that lower approach. So it's not as restrictive and therefore it's much safer to do on your own. You make a really good point. I mean, in each different category, whether and for people listening, FODMAPs is an acronym for groups of foods like fructose, oligosaccharides, disaccharides, all the rest, right? Monosaccharides. Is it alleles yeah. and polys, right? Yeah, alleles and polyols. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so each of these categories has a variety of foods that fall under each one. And you use the example of chickpeas. Each one of those foods has different density of FODMAPs or prebiotics, fibers in each of them. So what you're saying, and I'm sure what we'd see in your book is that 
it isn't that blueberries or chickpeas are totally off your list. It's that there's a specific size quantity that you can start to introduce and should introduce without feeling like this is a totally off limits food. Absolutely. And that is reinforced by the categorization of FODMAP. So what's considered high, for example, a cup of wholemeal pasta is considered high FODMAP. But if you cut that down to a third of a cup, actually it's considered low FODMAP. So it's about that load that you're putting into your gut. Absolutely. Love it. So you mentioned this earlier, and I know this is going to be a major takeaway, but it's diversity that you want people to have in their diet. Can we talk a little bit more about what research is showing in regards to gut health and how diversity plays a role in how robust your microbiome is? Yeah, look, Kelly, I think this is kind of a new area, certainly since when I was trained, we were told that obviously having plants was really beneficial and people who ate more plants seemed to you know, live longer, be happier, be a better body weight, all of the rest of it. But I guess we never quite understood the mechanism. But thanks to the discovery of the gut microbiome and technology that's allowed us to be able to identify exactly the different types of bacteria. And, and for those who are really into the science, we don't just have bacteria in our gut. We have viruses and parasites and beneficial yeast, actually, which work together. But we could probably touch on that maybe in a, a second podcast because I know there's a lot to digest for people. But when it comes to the gut microbiome, we know that each different type of plant actually contains a different type of array of plant chemicals which feed different types of gut bacteria. So this is where this concept of plant diversity really has come from. So it was, um, I think it was 2018, the first study showed that people who ate at least 30 different types of plants had better gut health than those who ate the same 10 on repeat. And that was really quite interesting because we historically always used to look at, oh, you've got really high fruit and veg intake, therefore you must be healthy. But we didn't focus on whether they were eating apples and pears and potatoes and cauliflower. And that was kind of everything they were having on a daily basis and a weekly basis and not getting that diversity. So it's kind of this new concept that just because you're having loads of plants doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have good gut health. The fundamental was that diversity, because if you eat a superfood, a superfood like blueberries all the time, you're really actually narrowing down the types of bacteria, the ones that just like blueberries. You're not feeding the ones that like raspberries and the ones that like blackberries and the ones that like apples, for example. So actually, we need to start looking at our diet and thinking about that diversity to get in all of the different types of plant chemicals. We call them phytochemicals. There's literally tens of thousands that feed all of the different gut bacteria. Because what we know is people who are healthier, happier, better hormonal control, they've got a more diverse range of gut bacteria living in them because each bacteria has its own skill set. So the more diverse bacteria in our gut, the kind of more protection, the more skills we've got within us. So that's the ultimate goal, I think, when it comes to gut health, more different bacteria to look after us. Well, what you just said was that the phytochemicals that are present in our produce, in our fruits, in our vegetables, in our nuts and seeds, things of that nature are specifically feeding certain types of bacteria. I think previously we thought, oh, the polyphenols or the specific phytochemicals present in that food was being directly absorbed by our body. Can you talk about what's actually happening? Yeah. So this category of 
of these things called the certain types of phytochemicals, but the subcategory is these polyphenols. And this is why you may have heard things like dark chocolate, red wine, olive oil, and things like that are beneficial because of these polyphenols. And like you said, historically, we thought that the polyphenols were digested and metabolized by human cells, and that's how they're having their benefit. But actually what we've discovered is about 90% of these polyphenols human cells can't digest. So actually they travel through most of our digestive system undigested, but that's where our gut bacteria come into play. They're the unique ones with the enzymes to break down those polyphenols and transform them into these array of other chemicals with these antioxidant and anti-inflammatory benefits. So without our microbiome, those, those that community of, of trillions of microorganisms, we would not be getting those benefits from those poly- polyphenols. Now, more than ever, it's really important that we're voting with our pocketbook. I think we can look at every decision we make as a way to support brands that are focused on our planet's health and sustainability. And in the last year and a half, I've really tried to clean out my closet. And that's when I found Viore. So Viore is an athleisure brand. And if you've been at school drop-off, I think one out of every four moms are wearing their performance joggers because they're really, really comfortable and they come in amazing colors. But the reason why I love Viore so much is because they're committed to offsetting 100% of their carbon footprint and they're focused on sustainable materials. So not only are they really high quality, beautiful and super comfortable, but they're really focused on a healthy planet. So if you are looking for a way to gift uh, your family members something that they're going to love, but also support brands that are focused on sustainability, Viore should be a brand that's on your radar. And um, and if you haven't given their clothing a chance, I recommend their performance jogger and their daily legging. And if you have a hubby, their men's core short is awesome. But I also want to support you to do that. So you're going to receive 20% off your first order and free shipping for orders over $75 and you get free returns. So all you need to do is go to viore.com forward slash Kelly and you can see all of the amazing options they have. That's viore.com forward slash Kelly and viore is spelled V-U-O-R-I and dot com slash Kelly. And the deal you're getting is 20% off your first order and free shipping for orders over $75 and they have a free returns policy. So you can't lose by giving them a try and just feeling how soft and luxurious these sustainable clothing options are for your athleisure wear. So those chemicals that are being produced from our microbes, also known as postbiotics, what are some of your favorites and how can we produce more of them? Yeah, this whole world of postbiotics, as if there's not enough P words. So we have <laughs> the prebiotic. So that's the fertilizer we spoke about. We have the probiotic. That's the live microorganisms we spoke about. And now we've got the postbiotic. And that essentially, like you said, is the chemicals the bacteria are actually producing. And the ones where I guess which have been studied the most are the called short chain fatty acids. So you may have heard of things like butyrate and propanate. So these are like little superpower chemicals where they go throughout our body and do a whole range of things. They help feed our gut lining to reduce things like leaky gut. They also help regulate our appetite hormones. Some of them have been shown to pass that blood-brain barrier to communicate with our brain via that way. 
me being a scientist, I would always want to make sure the science is kind of translated accurately. And there's a lot of companies out there that have cottoned on to the power of postbiotics. So they've started to sell things like these short chain fatty acids. But we need to be cautious because remember the bacteria produce them. Most of the bacteria actually is the lower 1.5 meters of our gut. So our gut's actually nine meters long, so massively long. But most of the bacteria is in the last 1.5 meters. So that's where essentially these short-chain fatty acids are being produced and they're directly absorbed in a localized place to have that maximized effect. Whereas if we're having postbiotics orally to try skip that need for the bacteria, what happens is these have to go through very acidic environments in our stomach, for example, subjected to a whole lot of acids and then digestive enzymes and stuff like that. So actually a lot of them don't reach the right place for absorption in the right format. They've been denatured and kind of destroyed in a way. So again, I probably would limit people's purchasing of these postbiotics at the moment until we have more science to show that these more targeted ones actually can have those health benefits that the bacteria have shown that, you know, in that targeted location. It's so funny because we obviously all want a quick fix and you find that something is really great for you. And if it can be in pill or bottle form, you want to take it and support yourself. But I totally agree. I mean, it's so much more impactful in the long term to really work on feeding those microbes and creating that healthy layer of mucin and microbes that, that really are protecting us from the outside world. So if a client or someone working with you this has become a very popular diet, the carnivore diet, has come to you and said, I started doing this. I've read that fasting breaks from food, eating high quantities of red meat protein and animal protein allows me to take really long fasts or have long fasts. I I read that that's beneficial to the microbiome. When you weigh the differences between having a diverse diet and having times of fasting for the microbiome, can you talk about the benefits of maybe both and why you would caution against a low diverse diet? Yeah, no, I think that's a really good good one because I, like you said, the carnivore diet, so essentially where they're just eating all animal foods, very little plant foods, is quite popular. And what I would say with that diet is show me the human evidence in terms of clinical trials where they've shown that's linked with health outcomes. And I think it's important because we see so much on social media and Dr. Google and blogs and stuff like that, where it's based on what we call anecdotal evidence. So we know that Joe down the road has gone on the carnivore diet and, you know, she says she's feeling great. She's got all of this energy and like, whoa, geez, I want to feel like that. Maybe I should do that. But actually little do you know that actually she's just got a new job She's just gotten into a new relationship. She's got a new puppy. All these other factors that may be making her feel better. And we don't necessarily know what she's going to be like five years down the line on that sort of diet. So we need to be a bit cautious. And that's why I always, you know, am very pro using and advocating for ways of eating and dietary information that has been shown in large populations to have specific health benefits. And that's where that diversity comes in. We know that things like the Mediterranean diet, which is loaded with this plant-based diversity, they're the ones that are living the longest, the healthiest, lower risk of all these other chronic conditions. So that's where we see, you know, that really strong evidence. Um, In terms of people who want to have higher protein diets, you know, I'm all for the individualized. Some people feel better that way, which is great. But I always want people to understand that 
the protein, when the bacteria get protein, they produce these, uh, a range of chemicals, some of which can be quite harmful. We link with them things like colon cancer risk. So people are having these really large meat intakes that are significantly higher at risk of things like colon cancer. So just thinking about, I guess, the longer term effects. And yes, maybe you might feel better in the short term because you won't be getting bloated and things which these plants could do to you. But remember, it's like the gym, short term pain for longer term gains, essentially. So just being cautious of that side of thing. In terms of fasting, that's a really uh, other interesting one. And I guess, again, it comes down to individualized nature. In terms of, I guess, legit gut health benefits, we know that having at least a 12-hour fast overnight is beneficial. So that just gives the gut that time to kind of the gut lining to shed, which happens every 10 or so days, and the lining to kind of reformulate the bacteria to like clean it all down and things to move through. Now, for some people I see in clinic, they benefit from having longer fast. So they kind of reducing their eating window, maybe two hours either side. So, you know, not having a meal until 10 a.m. and their last one's at 6 p.m. or something like that. And they find that that can be helpful more for, I see, weight management. There is no convincing evidence at the moment, could change, but at the moment there's limited convincing evidence in humans that fasting will have all of these additional longevity benefits that you hear or you read about on blogs and things like better mental clarity and yeah, longevity benefits and and cell turnover and stuff like that. There's that's based, the things you may hear about, that's based on animal studies. And we know that we're very different to mice. And in fact, about a quarter, only about a quarter of the evidence from animals actually translates into the humans because we're very different. So I would say, be very careful not to be caught up in, oh my God, it's going to you know support longevity and stuff like that because we don't have the human evidence. And certainly what I see in clinic is that often people, when they go on these really long fasts, they reduce down the eating window so much that they have a very limited window to get in their dietary fiber. And we know dietary fiber essentially is like the fuel for our gut bacteria. And, you know, in most Western countries, we're getting far below the national recommendations. So, in, you know, it slightly differs from country to country, but I guess internationally, we, we recommend around 30 grams of fiber per day for adults. I know in the US, they do have it slightly lower for females and higher for males. But now, internationally speaking, it's about 30 grams. Yet most of us are getting well below 20 grams and even 15 grams. So we're certainly not getting enough fiber. And if we're reducing down an eating window, people are less likely to be able to get that fiber. And we know fiber is linked with an array of health benefits. Like eight grams of fiber has been linked with a, a reduction in heart disease by, I think it's about 18%, risk of type 2 diabetes by 15%, and colon cancer risk by, I think it's about 8%. And that's just eight grams of fiber, which is like two pieces of fruit or a can of beans or something like that. You know, we've got that evidence there to show that it is really important, but I'm not going to dismiss the fact that some people prefer the fasting state, but most of the evidence is showing if it, the main benefit comes from weight management because essentially reducing down the eating window, you're less likely going to have, have the extra calories and the snacks and stuff like that. Well, let's talk about how you get fiber into your diet because I am a huge fan of fiber. It's definitely a pillar of blood sugar balance. And when I think back to people who are fasting, for example, when I have them on a continuous glucose monitor and their blood sugar is really stable after a fast, I feel like that has a lot to do with their mental clarity. And once I get someone to a place of blood sugar balance, they feel that mental clarity when they're eating and when they're not, which is kind of cool. But I, I know what you're saying. So, so let's talk about fiber because it is one thing to talk about, oh, up your fiber. 
But like in a day, what does that look like for you, your family, recommendations you're making to your clients? How and what are some of your favorite ways to get in good sources of fiber? Yeah. So I think this is where we bring it all together in terms of things like the plant diversity, the polyphenols, the phytochemicals, and the fiber. We hear all of these words. And the latest, my latest book, How to Eat More Plants, essentially, is all about that. So it's bringing these complex words together to highlight. It's actually very simple to get in the amount of plants, i.e., which, you know, the backbone of plants is your fiber. So it's kind of the same sorts of things that you need in your diet. But I guess the recommendations since we've understood about the microbiome has slightly changed because historically, I guess we thought, well, if you can't get your fiber from plants, take a fiber supplement and probably it will have most of the health benefits attached to that. But now we've appreciated that actually there's close to a hundred different types of fiber. And in most supplements, you know, you might get one or two different types of fiber. So you're certainly not getting that diversity and therefore you're not feeding that diverse range of gut microbiome. So One of the things I talk about in the book is the super six. So essentially there are six different plant-based food groups and each different category not only contains different fibers to feed different gut bacteria, it's got different polyphenols and these other phytochemicals. So we want to make sure most days we try to get something from the super six. That includes things like your whole grains, like quinoa and oats. You've got your legumes, so things like chickpeas and your lentils. You've got your nuts and your seeds, your fruit, your veg, and your herbs and your spices. Now, I guess within that, I talk about more of the sources. So going for whole and not refined. And I think this is an important one because I guess there's a lot of confusion around whole grains, for example, because people you know, often say, well, you know, I'm having three slices of wholemeal bread, therefore it should be really healthy because wholemeal is so good for you. But actually you're missing out, I guess, two concepts to, to what we see has got the ultimate health benefit. One is the diversity. So we get most of our whole grains from wheat and we know that that is not ideal because we're not feeding the buckwheat-lacking bacteria, or we're not feeding the quinoa-lacking bacteria. So we're not getting in that diversity. And the second thing is that a lot of these like whole grain foods actually have been so ultra processed like bread like most of them contain sugars a range of additives and things like that so one of the principles i talk about in in the book is going for whole and not refined so where you can having things like um, wheat berries barley grains instead of having that processed version where they've kind of not only stamped out a lot of the health benefits through that processing, it kills a lot of those phytochemicals, but also they add in those extra food additives. And that's another study we've got going on at King's is looking at food additives where some of the early stage research has suggested that certain types of food additives, although they've been classified as grass, which means generally regarded as safe by health authorities, that research had all been done before we understood about our gut microbiome. And now we understand more about a gut microbiome. We're like, oh, actually, maybe we should retest a lot of these food additives. So certainly in Europe, the European Food Safety Authority is getting us to retest a lot of these food additives. And and some of it, as I mentioned, we're running at King's at the moment, looking at a category called food additive emulsifiers. And we're we're looking at the harm of them as, as potentially being more aggressive to our gut health. So I I don't want to put fear in people's minds because, you know, the jury is still out. But certainly what I think we should be all doing is trying to limit these processed foods until we understand more about the the long-term effects. No, I think you make such a good point. I was looking at this research and shared it online, like I want to say like six weeks ago, looking at emulsifiers. And there was a study that came out and it was like 18 out of 19 or 19 out of 20 were producing inflammatory byproducts and chemicals when ingested. And they were like, 
the guargums. And the only one that seemed to not create a problem was lecithin as like not being as aggressive. But still, when you look at a lot of these products, whether they're like plant-based alternatives or pre-made packaged foods, a lot of acellular carbohydrates, not in the fiber cell, totally obliterated into like a flour, a yogurt, a alternative milk, they're in everything. And it's never just one. It's not, it's rarely that they're just using lecithin as the emulsifier. It's normally paired with a gum. It's normally paired with added like vitamins that may not even be in their proper form. It's unfortunate because it's exciting to think like, oh, fun, you can make me a cheese sauce or <laughs> something that I, I grew up on and tastes delicious and is highly palatable, but at the same time, may be more detrimental to gut health. So knowing this research, how do you, are there any concessions you make personally or are you pretty strict about emulsifiers in your home? Yeah. So I think it certainly has made me more conscious of looking at the labels and you know what? I start to, our research did show that 30% of the foods we have on a daily basis actually contain these additives, these emulsifiers. So like they are so prevalent in our food supply. Mm-hmm. And I've obviously started to look at which ones and a lot of our plant-based milks, which I think there's been this big shift because milk, cow's milk, but animal's milk has been really demonized. So everyone's yeah. shifted to these plant-based ones. And most of them have things like the carrageenan in it, which is one of the emulsifiers that we think has quite an aggressive impact. So yeah, it is, it is really interesting and certainly has made me, I guess, review the labels more so and go back to basics. So, you know, I'm a big fan of things like fermented dairy as kind of that source versus having these kind of ultra-processed plant sources of, of soy yogurts and stuff like that. Definitely. I mean, when you can get down to like a single ingredient or just ingredients that have been used over time by our grandparents and traditional societies and bringing in those whole foods, like it it makes me so motivated seeing the research personally. And I love this podcast already because it isn't fear-mongering. It's just, hey, how can you get the super six in? How are you getting your whole grains, your legumes, nuts and seeds, fruits and veg, herbs and spices? Like it is diversity. It is homemade if you can do it. And it really is just starting to look at labels because there aren't quick fixes. And a lot of times there's always the research lags after things are produced, unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely, Kelly. And I think one of the the key principles that I I live by is the focus on inclusion, not exclusion. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just a much healthier mindset around all of this nutrition because it can be so confusing and overwhelming. So I like to think if you're getting in your super sex, focusing on them, remember them being mainly whole plants rather than the processed ones. If you are having some processed foods in between, you know, don't get too hung up and fixated on it because we know that it's probably more about the quantity of these super sex. So they they form the majority of your diet that's going to kind of protect your gut lining from the fiber and the things that they produce from that. So yeah, absolutely. I think focusing on that. And, you know, one of the things that, again, you know, in the book, there's 80 plus recipes and it's just about tweaking some of your family favorites. So one of my favorites, which I'm actually having for dinner tonight, um, which is on my mind, is my spinach and ricotta uh, ravioli or stuffed pasta shells. So 
I'm Italian by background and we obviously love pasta. My nonna used to always produce the most amazing ravioli. So what I've done to that is a bit of a cheat in terms of instead of actually making ravioli, I've just put it in the pasta shells. But also I've taken out half of the cheese. I still have some cheese in there for the flavor, but I've added a can of mixed beans um, because it adds all of that prebiotic as well as instead of just being spinach, adding in some frozen peas. Again, really a cost-effective, easy, simple hacks where I've now, you know, taken something that's probably more of a treat food to make it meet probably 90% plants and that, you know, it still tastes really delicious, feeds my gut bacteria. And it's that sort of principle where you can turn your, your family favorites, whacking in some, some legumes, some canned legumes and some nuts or seeds and stuff like that and still get all those health benefits, the flavor. It, it's really a, quite an easy concept as soon as you start to switch your brain to thinking plant diversity in any recipe that you've got in front of you. I love that. Our next sponsor is Athletic Greens. I take AG1 every day because about a year after Toshin's birth, I felt really nutrient depleted. I decided to do a slew of blood tests with my functional MD and found through a NutriVal that I was nutrient depleted. Now, being that I try really hard to supplement appropriately and eat a nutrient dense Fab4 diet, this was quite surprising, but also not so much of a surprise because I have had two babies back to back and breastfed both of them for over 18 months. So I was literally giving all my nutrition away. I started taking AG1 in the afternoon as insurance. I wanted this nutritional powerhouse to level up and be an efficient way for me to get in a bunch of nutrients. And I noticed a big difference in my energy and I started to actually crave it. So it has been such a key part of my life. It is way more than greens. It gives you all of the health promoting products like a multivitamin, a multimineral, prebiotics, probiotics, and it's really supportive of whole body health so you can thrive and great gut health. So if you want to take ownership over your health like I had to do, Today is a good day to start. Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. So go to athleticgreens.com forward slash be well. That's athleticgreens.com forward slash be well and check it out. It's an all-time favorite. So when it comes to, you said adding frozen peas, what do you keep in your freezer that you add to recipes or that you add to your meals and how are you using? Because I think a lot of pushback that I get from just being a clinician with clients is, oh, well, when I go to the grocery store and I buy all these veggies and fruits, they always go bad. So how do you utilize your freezer to keep up with diversity? Yeah, look, I'm a big fan of freezing, bulk cooking, and then freezing. So if I go to the fruit and veg store, I'll usually like make a really big stew or really big stir fry and then portion up and freeze it. I always have a pack of frozen mixed veg in my freezer as well as mixed berries because they're just such easy wins. Like for example, even if you're having like Indian as a takeaway, what I do is just get a cup of the frozen ones, pop it in the microwave, then stir it in the curry Indian takeaway. And I've just added extra plants in. So I still get the joy of the easiness of the takeaway, but I've just fed my gut bacteria at the same time. So yeah, I'm a big fan of relying on the frozen. And and Kelly, as you very well know, a lot of the frozen veg actually is snap frozen. So it does retain a lot of its nutrition. Uh, So we certainly shouldn't snub it, but it's not fresh. Therefore, it's not good for you. Actually, it can be, you know, amazing for you. Definitely. I actually saw a hack online, like during the pandemic that I took and I've used a million times, which is 
because we love roasted veggies in my house, but taking a bag of frozen vegetables and throwing them on the sheet tray, putting them in your oven at like 400 degrees for 10 to 15 minutes, you evaporate the water, then you pull it out, oil it and season it, and it'll taste just like roasted veggies. So we've been using that and I've been buying more frozen veggies than I ever have, but I'm definitely going to take your takeaway tip with me because I think most people think all or nothing. And you just gave us an example of no, not all or nothing. You're a mom, you have a business, you have busy days. There are times when you have to do takeaway or takeout or DoorDash or wherever you are, what you do. And there's ways to make it more healthful or more diverse. Yeah, Kelly, I think we all need these kind of top tips kind of in our back pocket because like you said, very busy lives. It's not practical. If anyone ever goes for perfection, in a way they're setting themselves up for failure because life gets in the way. Life can be a struggle. So supporting ourselves wherever we can. And I guess my mindset is at every meal, I want to make sure there's something on my plate that feeds my taste buds or something I'm going to enjoy because food should be enjoyable, but also something's going to feed my gut bacteria. So something from, you know, at least one of the super six. So if you're having a a dinner party and you've got friends coming over, you're not going to exclude the friend that only likes plants. You know, you're going to cater to everyone. And and that's the same sort of process. In fact, probably the bacteria are better friends because they actually (laughs) do a lot of good things for us. Speaking of which, what are some of the good things that these gut bacteria do for us and the benefits they provide? Oh, so many different things. You know, it can start from your hormones. We know that our gut bacteria help regulate our estrogen levels. So certainly if people are experiencing some sort of hormonal imbalance, whether it's PCOS or going through the menopause or polycystic ovary, we know that our gut microbiome is linked to those conditions. So it, it pays to focus on that. Then we obviously know that our gut-brain connection is actually really powerful. And there is studies now out there showing that focusing on feeding the gut bacteria with that, those super six, that diversity has actually been shown to have significant improvements in in mental health scores with people who have actually diagnosed depression. So that's another really important one. Other people who are looking at more uh, focus on weight management and blood sugar control, we know that our gut bacteria like I mentioned before, help regulate our appetite hormones, ghrelin and leptin, as well as things like the blood sugar release in our body can help blunten those spikes. Again, like you said, helping with mental clarity and stuff like that. Um, we know obviously our immune system, 70% of our immune system lives in the gut. Uh, and we have seen it play out in COVID where people who have better gut health seem to be at a much lower risk of becoming unwell if they do get COVID. So, you know, there is a wealth of evidence there again to support that. So, you know, that's why I always say gut health is important to absolutely everyone. Whatever your health goal, there is most likely going to be an angle where a gut bacteria can actually help you out. So true. So knowing how important gut health is, and you're a mom of a 15-month-old, 19-month-old? Yeah, good memory, 19-month-old. 19-month-old, a little Archie. And knowing that his gut microbiome is really just developing and so critically important, uh, what are you doing as a mom to help him increase his diversity? What are some like of your favorite foods and snacks to give him and that you feed yourself and your family? Yeah, great one. We know that actually the first, no pressure to all the moms out there because we've got enough pressure on us. Um, But the first thousand days of life of a bub is really, really important for their establishment of their gut microbiome. So I guess maybe going to pregnancy actually, again, not to put pressure on us, but if we can, I know often we feel nauseated and all the rest of it. 
adding in some extra veg. You know, it could be if you're feeling nauseated, going for things like a frittata and putting it in the fridge so it's cold so you don't smell the veg or actually making a frozen smoothie and and blending in some frozen cauliflower. Those little things like that, again, I go through them all in the book in terms of how we can sneak an extra veg without necessarily knowing that. That actually has been shown to help with the development of our baby's microbiome, which is mind-blowing. The fact that, you know, it's nine months away, but it still happens. So, and even our baby's taste taste preference. So there's been studies that show that what mum eats can impact Bob's taste acceptance of certain foods. Then we we know that if you can, vaginal birth is obviously ideal. Of course, we can't predict everything. Sometimes we, you know, do need to go down the C-section. Similarly with breastfeeding, that's going to be the best because it's got the pre and probiotics in it. Of course, not everyone can do it. It can be hugely challenging. Like for me, it was, I always thought, oh, I'll be a natural, but it's really, really challenging, particularly when you're straight back to work. But if you can do that, that's also really important, particularly if you, you know, you have C-section. So kind of adding these little bits, we know that getting the kids, you know, probably from three months onwards, if you've got a furry pet or a friend does, getting them acquainted with like little puppies has been shown to lower their risk of things like allergies because we know that exposing bubs to, to kind of different microbes actually helps teach their immune system what to react to and what not to react to. So actually, you know, it is important that we let kids not dirt, dirt, like not on the tube or on the subway. We don't want them playing with that sort of like unhygienic dirt. But, you know, going to the forest and playing with that sort of dirt actually has been shown to be good for kids' development. So I'm a big on letting Archie kind of get muddy at the in the forest. And I know I haven't directly answered your question yet, but I wanted to add in all those things and then we could focus on diet because I think as mums, sometimes we get a bit fixated on the food. And I know that for some kids, they're really fussy and that can just break a mum's heart or a dad's heart for that matter. Uh, if they're in charge of the food, the kids chuck it out. But I guess in terms of what I do with Archie and I'm quite lucky because he loves food and he's 19 months. So I know there probably will come a point where he'll start chucking his super six back at me, but it hasn't happened yet. So let's knock on wood. So what, what I did is, is from like about four and a half months, actually quite early on, I did start to get him, you know, looking at food, tasting little bits of food, watching mommy and daddy both eating the plants in front of him and got him never, never um, kind of put anything in his mouth. He, I've got him to grab the foods and I, Obviously, it's my background, so a bit OCD about it, but I, I've made sure that he always had something from each of the Super Six every day, which sounds much harder than what it is. It's actually really easy. And he loves things like mixed beans, like butter beans. He thinks they're like little treats. Or if he sees a pack of chickpeas, he gets very excited. So, you know, whether in the early stage, obviously, it's like blending them all together. Um, but it's just at the grocery store thinking diversity. So I would never buy pumpkin seeds on their own. I always get the three seed mix. I would never buy, very rarely buy like a bean on its own. I always get the the four bean mix. You know, same with the the nuts, I always get the mixed nuts. So actually it's quite easy to get that diversity in by thinking in that way. And like his porridge, for example, it's probably a, an easy one to share is that, you know, I always get the porridge mixes that have some rye oats in it, as well as just your standard oats, um, even and some barley in it. So I cook that up. What I do then is add in two teaspoons of mixed seeds, then add some mixed nut butter to it. Then I grate in carrot or courgette or whatever veg has got going. And then I add in some turmeric and cinnamon. And then I also add in some dates to get a little bit of sweetness in there for him. So that's kind of the soup six just in one meal. And it's actually really easy making a bulk that lasts five days of breakfast. Love it. That is 
I mean, just the little tips of like buying the mixed beans, buying the mixed nuts, buying the mixed seeds, mixing up your nut butters. I mean, shout out to Wild Friends. I hadn't really thought about plant diversity when I created a couple of nut butter blends, but now I'm looking at them completely differently because I'm like, wait, my crunchy has flax and chia and chunks of cashew, almond butter, cashew butter. It's like, a, I just thought so it was delicious, but look yeah. at that. Gut health benefits. <laughs> I reckon your gut subconsciously was sending messages when you were designing that up. You right. were like, even totally. if you didn't consciously connect it, your gut was like, oh, this is going to feed me and, and get that diversity. And sorry, I forgot. I also blend in some butter beans into that porridge to get in the super six. <laughs> oh, there you go. See, I mean, things like butter beans, cauliflower, even like chickpeas, I look at them as like such a bland, like a thickener and filler that makes you feel full and full because of all of the fiber and benefits there, but truly easy to, to add to a meal without worrying about completely changing the flavor or the taste. Yeah, absolutely. And they, they make such a creamy texture as well, right? If you blend them. So uh, yeah. yeah, I'm obsessed with them. Amazing. This has been so much fun and so inspirational in regards to getting the Super 6 in, diversifying. Before we wrap up, I'm curious, there's a lot, like you said, on the internet, are there any myths out there in regards to gut health that you want to debunk, that you want people to know, or any extra tips you want to leave the audience with? Yeah, I think there are so many, but I think probably one is about probiotics. So uh, the, the bacteria that have been trained to have health benefits. In fact, some of them are types of yeast so that they're not all um, bacteria. I think there's a lot of myths surrounding that. In fact, there is this concept that we all need to be on a probiotic. And one minute the media is saying we all, yeah, like I said, should be on them. The next minute, like actually they're a waste of your money. So there's no wonder that everyone is so confused about them. And what we know in, according to the science is that different bacteria and yeast, i.e. different probiotics, do different things. So there's actually no benefit from just pulling any old probiotic off the shelf and expecting your mental health to improve, your skin to improve, et cetera. You need to be very specific. We need to be quite therapeutic about probiotics. An example is if you have to go on antibiotics for whatever reason, there's good scientific evidence to take a specific probiotic. There's two different types. One is called Saccharomyces boulardii or Lactobacillus ramus GG. You take either or at 5 billion units twice a day throughout your antibiotic period and for a week after. Now, that sounds probably very therapeutic for the average person. Like, oh my God, that, what, what do I need to write that down? Freak out. But guys, if we want to have the health benefits of, of probiotics, we need to be very specific about them. There's no point kind of just wasting your money on any. So I think that is where the world of probiotics is going. So in the first book, Love You Got, I actually got my colleagues from King's to review the scientific evidence. And we came up with six probiotic indications where there's we have that probiotic prescription right now, like which one you should take, what duration, what dose to have that specific health benefit. And you find that there's a lot of areas, for example, acne, there's not any convincing evidence out there at the moment showing that taking a probiotic will help with your acne at the moment. That's early days. Like we might have just not tested the right types because, like I said, all of them do different things. But I think that's probably an important one, particularly when, you know, funds are, are, are short. I want to make sure people get the most out of the things that they're looking to buy and not completely dismiss the probiotic world, but know that taking these ones that cure all, that's probably going to be a waste of your, of your money. Definitely. Speaking of saving money, but keeping your plant diversity, what tips do you have for that? Yeah. So I think one of the key ones is buying in season. So although I say about diversity, I don't expect you to go and buy raspberries 
fresh raspberries at like four times the cost when they're out of season, either during season when they're super cheap, buy them bulk and freeze them or buy the frozen varieties. So I always say buy in season and, you know, buy in bulk, maybe share with another family or share with some friends and family and they might be in charge of the fruit section. You might be the veg person and you buy yours in that in bulk because that's always going to be cheaper. Also, you know, check in which supermarket you're at, but the fresh stuff, check when they go on sale. I think there is this kind of belief that if they're a little bit bruised or the leaves are a bit wilted, they're not very good or they're, we should chuck them out. And that's not the case. Like bananas, for example, you know, the more sort of brown they are, they actually can, you know, sweeten foods even more sort of thing. And bruised veg actually go really well in stews and they often are reduced to like a quarter of the price if they weren't. So I think those sorts of things, find out when things are reduced to clear at the shops and be a bit more savvy, buy things on special. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for your time and for motivating the audience. Uh, I would love for everyone to follow along with you and snag those books. It sounds like there's a lot of applicable guides in those books in regards to like adding the super six and taking your probiotics and having a plan. So where can they follow along? Where can they snag your books? Where can they learn more? Yeah. So you can follow me at the gut health doctor. So it's across all the socials and website is the gut health doctor.com. And then the books love your gut and how to eat more plants. They're both found on all your good bookstores. Amazing. We will link to everything in the show notes. It was such a pleasure, Dr. Rossi. Thank you for being here. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for talking, Kelly. Thank you for listening to Be Well by Kelly. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at bewellbykelly.com and follow me on Instagram at bewellbykelly. I would love if you picked up my books, Body Love and Body Love Every Day. They're sold on Amazon and at all major booksellers. 